I'm Amy Carson, and this is The Balance, understanding nonprofit finance. In today's episode, Chuck Newman joins me to talk about minimizing healthcare expenses. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of The Balance. Our guest today is Chuck Newman. Chuck is president of Charles Newman Company and vice president at Hill Group. Welcome, Chuck. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Amy. My pleasure, Chuck. Chuck, could you give us you know, a little bit of background about who you are and what you do? I'm 30 years in the life and health insurance business. I started as an agent with Mass Mutual 30 years ago, and gradually my practice morphed to employee benefits. So uh, today our firm serves over 200 companies for their group health insurance, their ancillary employee benefits like dental, vision, life, uh, disability insurance, and voluntary benefits that employees purchase through payroll deduction, uh, like uh, accident uh, policies, short-term disability policies, critical illness policies. Okay. And I, I know this is like a really hot topic right now, and it's a particularly hot topic with a lot of our clients, how to minimize healthcare costs. How do I, you know, do I do a PEO or do I... Um, do I manage this all independently? And this doesn't matter, nonprofit, for-profit, it's all the same thing, correct? It is. Unfortunately, there's no special dispensation for nonprofits. You know, I think you and I both share a common interest in helping nonprofits. We serve three dozen nonprofits and and growing. Uh, You know, I, I decided to focus more on nonprofits about 15 years ago. I'm a lifelong volunteer and I've done fundraisers, you know, comedy nights and golf outings and galas. And I see how hard it is to, you know, raise that that money for nonprofits. So for us, if we can save money for nonprofits, it's it's a home run. It really is. A lot of times we are asked to do a cost-benefit analysis as to whether or not an organization should switch to a PEO. Quite frankly, we've thought through this for our own organization. Can you walk us through maybe how that should look? That's gotten a lot more traction, certainly in the past couple of years during the pandemic, but it was PEOs, professional employer organizations, Mm -hmm. were getting traction before that. What are they? Well, with a PEO, professional employer organization, you put your entire operation on their payroll. So your employees go on the PEO's payroll under their federal tax ID number. And therefore, you're now part of a co-employment relationship with that PEO where you and your employees can avail yourselves of large group benefits. A PEO aggregates hundreds of companies, thousands of employees to get that large group experience, that large group economies of scale uh, when it comes to your insurance costs. And the PEO will do everything from your HR and compliance to your employee benefits and charge you a monthly fee for that. The um, PEO is aggregating your payroll, is bringing in your workers' compensation insurance many times, your errors and omission, directors and officers insurance, uh, employment practices, liability insurance. All of those are wrapped wow. into the bundle with a PEO. Okay. Um, it's bringing in HR tools, which you may not currently possess, and it's bringing compliance tools. Now, it's bringing in all of that plus the potential of lower cost insurance, not only health insurance, but dental, 
disability, life insurance, vision coverage, all like kind of large company benefits. So if you're really trying to accurately compare that with an unbundled approach where you have your own separate payroll insurances, right. et cetera, um, you have to also take into some of the intangibles. What is the, um, the current staff time required to deal with HR matters, exit interviews, for instance, which the PEO will do, um, hiring questions, questions about um, layoffs, uh, which there were a lot of during the pandemic, PTO, parental leave, all those questions are handled now by the PEO. And guess what? The PEO is also the responsible party uh, as the employer of record uh, for those things. So it does take a lot of the HR onus off of your staff, uh, assuming you even have staff that's dedicated to that. Right. And then they charge a fee. So the cost benefit is like, for example, I'm currently, I'm just going to make up numbers. I'm currently paying $5,000 to outsource my payroll on an annual basis. Let's say all of these insurance policies that you just listed, that costs me $10,000. So just right there, I'm, I'm spending $15,000 on all of these tasks. So help me then understand how the cost structure works for this. Is it per person? Yeah, the PEO is going to charge a monthly admin fee per person, per employee, whether they're full or part-time. And the part-timer sometimes becomes a non-starter, meaning if you have a large number of part-timers, which a lot of nonprofits might, and you're getting charged by the PEO, sometimes a reduced fee for part-timers, but sometimes not, um, does it really make sense if you've got a big percentage of, of those? Uh, The times it makes the most sense is when you're getting a big decrease in your health insurance premiums, when you lack HR capabilities, you're afraid of running afoul of a Department of Labor rules and regs. So you're getting that compliance component that you currently lack. Uh, They'll do the employee handbook or make sure you have an employee handbook uh, if you already don't. So there are a lot of kind of... uh, Again, large company or or up to date updating uh, of what you currently have, and for a lot of nonprofits, it's always we've always done it this way, but now you're going to have to do it another way. So there's a big yeah. learning curve when it comes to um, to hiring on and, and enlisting with a PEO or enlisting their services. That makes sense. So can you talk about how the PEO market, maybe some changes that have happened, or or how the I, I think the there's been a massive shift. In especially for service-based organizations like myself, like an accounting firm or a financial services firm, and there's been a massive shift to remote options. Um, I know we were huge sticklers for everybody needs to be in the office five days a week and all of this, and now we're letting everybody work from home. And so that then, I would argue, changes the hiring landscape because now I am much more comfortable hiring people from all over the country. And so I'm wondering if a PEO for an organization like mine, and I think this is very applicable for nonprofit organizations, this opens up the talent pool across multiple fields. So there's there's massive costs associated with hiring people from other states. There's work, you need to have workers' comp insurance in every state. I believe there's other insurance policies that you need to think about. You have to register. There's costs of doing, you know, to do business in these different states. How could a if I were to now uh, move forward with a PEO, how could that mitigate some of these costs? 
Yeah, the PEO is going to take care of those state registrations. Uh, the PEO is going to include the workers' compensation insurance and other coverage that uh, is required uh, for those employees. So it's going to make that process a lot more streamlined uh, yeah. and easier to effectuate, really. And that it's another reason why PEOs really have gained traction in the past couple of years. You know, we've, during the pandemic, uh, picked up new customers all over the country and many of them, I would even say most of them have what we call distributed workforces, where they're just in a variety of states yeah. uh, with a variety of statutes and, and, and laws. And to understand all those in one small business or nonprofit to be on top of those, I think would be next to impossible. So that is a big part of the growing you know, value proposition of PEOs. Uh, there are about 900 PEOs, something like that. Oh. Uh, we've chosen to work with about 16 to 20 at most. Um, they're certified PEOs. So, you know, that's a, a, a question uh, with respect to, you know, what about my withholdings? Because there have been instances in the past where withholdings uh, weren't remitted and were absconded with by non-certified PEOs. So we're only working with the largest, the ones who are certified to have the wherewithal to not <laughs> pull yeah. something like that off. But at the same time, you want to gauge the technology that they're using, whether that's going to be comfortable for your staff, uh, particularly in terms of the payroll and onboarding platforms. So what we'll typically do, we'll narrow down the field uh, initially, based on what a group is looking for in a PEO, we'll uh, go out to market, basically, your group with them, get the best rates, fine-tune it, come back to you a few times, and then maybe boil it down to one, two, or three. And then if you like all of them equally at the outset, do technology demos with them okay, uh, and get a sense for what their technology is like, because you're going to be living with it for a while. You know, a PEO will rate your group based on the demographics of your group. So you have to submit a census. Um, they will underwrite you on a large group basis, meaning they're aggregating you with these other companies and thousands of employees. But at the end of the day, if you and your employees uh, are kind of an older population uh, mm -hmm. who therefore tend to go to the doctor more and use more medications, you're not necessarily going to get a low rate for your health insurance under a PEO. And a PEO also may decide if they uncover perhaps someone in your organization who's undergoing very expensive treatment, perhaps for cancer or something else, right. unfortunately, um, maybe they will take a pass and they won't even give you a quote. So uh, a PEO is never slam dunk. It's never a guarantee. If a small employer asks me, will a PEO help me save money? My answer is always maybe. We really have to dig into it. We have to look. We have to go to multiple PEOs. And that's where we come in as a broker. You're not there trying to sort out what is the best option for us in terms of the PEO, you know, how to sort through all the fees and charges they're going to list for you. We will do that. We'll sort them through for you. We'll come back to you and explain all those fees and charges and what we felt the BS charges, to use a plain right. term, were so that we can ask them to take them out. 
That makes a lot of sense. And if you are to go the PEO route and then you decide that this doesn't work, how easy is it to untangle, to separate? We've done that a number okay. of times. Uh, we've done that. We call it unbundling from the PEO, okay. um, bringing in a, a payroll service partner who has a very robust HR and compliance offering as well. What, what people also don't realize is some payroll providers have more robust service than others. And really, if you're considering a PEO because of those other aspects, look at some of the payroll providers maybe differently and, and see what they're offering that yours doesn't. Absolutely, this does come up where groups want to unbundle. It comes up also uh, I mean, when groups grow to the point where their health insurance benefits can yeah. be obtained on a large group basis, right? So if they're over 50 in New Jersey or over 100 in New York, now they can get large group breaks for health insurance. They've got good demographics. Maybe the PEO makes less sense to them at that point, and they can actually save money by pulling out of the PEO and getting their services independently. And maybe they have an HR director in-house. Right. And that's that's actually the biggest hesitation that I hear from potential and even existing clients about moving to the PEO model is it's going to be impossible to unbundle. And we're looking to grow and we're looking to be at over 50 or over 100 employees over the next few years. And we don't want to be in this situation where we're stuck. And my general feeling is, well, that doesn't intuitively sound right that you're yeah, they're stuck. never yeah, yeah. they're never stuck. Absolutely never stuck. We help them at every step of the way in that unbundling process getting them the large group rates, bringing in a payroll partner. We provide, uh, for instance, uh, to our larger groups, really anyone with over 10 employees, a benefit administration platform. Uh, so if they're worried about you know, having a, a platform where they can post uh, all their employee benefits for employees to choose their health insurance or dental or vision or disability, we provide that. Um, we also provide a tool called HR 360, uh, which has all kinds of uh, information for small employers on HR and, and resources for employers on HR topics and matters. So it's, it may not necessarily be, a, particularly in the case of when they have a in-house HR person. Uh, why do they need that? That makes a lot of sense. So can we talk a little bit just moving back to the non-PEO market, so just a small business that just is independently going out and working with you to obtain healthcare rates. You know, the distinction really for businesses is whether you're a small group or a large group. In 46 states, small group means you actually have 50 or fewer employees who are eligible full-time. Uh, in four states, New York, California, Vermont, Colorado, that's 100 or fewer. Uh, but regardless of the state, when you're in that small group market for health insurance, your rates are community rated, meaning that if you're, for instance, as we are in the New York metro area, your rates tend to be a lot higher than if they're way upstate New York or if they're out in pick a, a state, you know, Indiana or Tennessee, uh, where they're much, much cheaper than in New York Metro. So your health insurance rates as a company, as an entity, are tied to the geographical location that you're based in. Why? Because that's where doctor and hospital costs are higher. So insurance is really responsive to that. Uh, how do you save money if you're in that small group market? You know, there are different ways with insurance companies. If you want to stay with one particular insurance company, typically like an Empire Blue Cross or an Anthem or Horizon, 
or United Healthcare will offer different size networks. The larger the network that you choose, the more access you have to doctors and hospitals, to practitioners, the higher the premium. The narrower or smaller the network, the lower the premium, the higher your out-of-pocket the lower the premium. So there's no magic in that, right? You take the smallest network, the highest out-of-pocket, small group marketing, you get at the lowest premium. How else can you save money if you're an employer? Uh, you can look at sometimes taking more of the onus of the employee out-of-pocket on yourself as an employer through something like a health reimbursement arrangement, HRA or fund an employee's HSA, health savings account, if you have a high deductible health savings account compatible plan. Maybe that'll work, maybe it won't. It really depends on the market that you're in and whether you get enough of a deduction in your health insurance premiums to warrant that kind of funding on the back, kind of backfilling by the employer. What I find so fascinating is our business is based in New Jersey. A lot of our clients are in New York. and. I will look at my plan in New Jersey and the cost, and then I'll look at my comparable plan in New York and the cost, and it's like double. And so it's fascinating how this varies and the rules vary state by state. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. It really is a patchwork, Amy. Uh, when people talk about our system, I kind of laugh because we don't have much of a system, right? Uh, in my opinion, when it comes to health insurance, it is a patchwork. It is state by state. Sometimes we'll try to arbitrage that and say, well, okay, where is the company? Where's the headquarters of the company? And sometimes it's what's on your website. Sometimes where you pay your workers comp bill. Sometimes it's where you have the majority of your employees, but we may be able to arbitrage that. And if you've got an office in New York and an office in Atlanta, maybe that Atlanta is really your headquarters and, and maybe we can you know, work it that way. But you're right that there, it can vary from state to state. In New Jersey and Connecticut, for instance, rates are age-based. In New York, they aren't. In New York, yes. it's one size fits all. So in New York, if you've got a bunch of older folks in an organization, their, their census skews older, it doesn't impact them the way it would in Connecticut or New Jersey. But by the same token, if you've got a young tech company, they're going to do better uh, where they're, they have age-based rates. Right. And that's actually always what shocks me is that our New Jersey-based company is, is age-based, but our New York-based clients, it's a, it's a flat rate. But the flat rate tends to skew, it seems, higher. There are certain exceptions, though, and, and that is in New York, for instance, if you're a family, and in New York, if you have one child or 10, you pay the same family rate. Really? In, yeah. In New Jersey, I, never, I actually did not catch that. Okay. Yeah, you're going to pay incrementally more for every additional child. So we have a little bit of a niche. We've carved out a niche with companies that are in that small group market. Again, remember the uh, 46 states, 50 or fewer, four states, 100 or fewer, but have a foreign ownership. They've got a foreign parent. Uh, their headquarters is somewhere outside of the United States. Doesn't matter okay. where. For those companies, we have a couple of international insurers doing business in the U.S. who will potentially treat the small group here as a large group based on their global population, even though we're only insuring the U.S. employees. Oh, so wow. Okay. That's, a, that's a little niche. And any company that has USA in their name or Americas in their name could be a great option for that, that type of planning. 
that's really good to know. And actually, I just have a, a random question then. So then in New Jersey, there I know there's you pay like every time you have a child, you pay. But I think it caps, it maxes out at three. A lot of small groups will subsidize their employees, though. So sometimes they'll give you a greater subsidy based on the number of dependents that you have. So sometimes employers try to offset those things. But, right. uh, you know, there, if you ask me a, a blanket, uh, you know, how do we reduce our rates? All the things I've already articulated, HRAs, HSAs, smaller networks, foreign companies, PEOs, we have to be creative. We have to pivot. We have to look at all the options uh, when it comes to small group employers. Got it. Large, large group employers, over 50 in New Jersey, over 100 in New York. Then there's, a, there's some horse trading that can come into play. Mm-hmm. There's negotiation with the insurance companies. And you know that's where the census also really comes in and, and the medical experience, the claims experience of the uh, group. That's really helpful. In your experience, is this just the way it goes? Or like, how do you manage this as a small nonprofit? You're trying, like, it's it's hard for a lot of our clients because it's such a massive unknown when some years your healthcare costs can increase by 20% and you have little to no warning. The insurance jargon for that is the trend. What is the trend? Every Mm -hmm. year, the trend in health insurance rates has been pretty much up and it's been double digits and it's typically been about 1% a month. So 12% a year, 3% a quarter. Um, year in, year out, what's the trend? It's always been that. I always kind of smile at that. It's like, why are you asking? It's, it's always going to be that 9 to 12 to 15%. But um, it did, you know, there were a couple of years where we did see a little bit of a break. A lot of that, though, uh, Amy, has to do with rules, regs, or what the insurers are being asked to provide. So it's very interesting that we'll hear something that the federal government has now required insurers to pay for X, vaccinations, PCR testing, uh, whatever it was during the pandemic. Let's just take that as an example. So we all figured, great, the insurance company is going to pay for that. But what happens? The insurance company wants to make that up, right? They're going to raise our rates because of that. So it's not necessarily, it's not free for sure. The insurance company wants to keep about 15 cents on the dollar that they take in in premium, right? They pay out 85 cents on the dollar. That's called the medical loss ratio. Not to get too wonky about it, but if they have to pay out more than 85 cents on the dollar, guess what? They're going to raise rates more substantially. Got it. Um, So that's one thing. The other is What's the overall annual increase in healthcare inflation? What are doctors charging? What are hospitals charging? What does it cost for you to get an MRI? We do a lot of education, particularly with our large groups. With small groups, um, we try to talk about your behavior as a consumer of healthcare. But with a small group in that community rated market, there's very little impact on your rates. There's really no, mm-hmm. in, there's a global impact on our rates when we all go to the emergency room and that's the highest place in the universe, the highest cost place in the universe to receive care, right? The emergency room. You know, so we try to talk about that, but particularly with our large groups where we're doing an open enrollment meeting, we're doing them in person now, or it still could be certainly video by Zoom. And uh, we're saying, listen, your doctor prescribes an MRI and says, go to the hospital to get that. You know, 
great, but ask your doctor, open your mouth and, and ask your doctor, hey, is there another place? Can I go to a standalone radiology facility to get that done? Uh, why? Because it's going to cost me as the uh, employee, as the consumer less. And ultimately, they may not be thinking about this may not be top of mind. It's going to cost our company's plan less. And at our renewal next year, our claims are going to be less because we all kind of changed our behavior and we didn't go to the most expensive place to get our tests or to get our care. And yeah. so we're talking about not going to the ER, going to urgent care whenever it's possible instead of the ER. Um, when a doctor prescribes the most expensive medications that you see, if you watch the nightly news and, and you see those commercials uh, that are on, they're all for medications, right? Uh, yeah. But if you don't get that one, but you ask if your doctor, hey, is there a generic available? I'm going to pay a lot less for that generic. Uh, your doctor may say, yes, there is. Sure, you can try it. Or your doctor may say, no, I want you to take that brand name. But all those little impacts have a very big impact on your rates. That makes a lot of sense. Another question, when choosing a plan, and we, I've actually heard this quite a bit from some of the organizations that we work with. A lot of our clients will go with, well, they're, they'll offer an option, like a monthly cost is $1, but the deductible is massive. Can you talk about some of the benefits of doing a plan like that, where you really, it's my understanding is it's really like a pay to play, like you just, you, you, you pay as you go almost? So all plans are either platinum, gold, silver, or bronze. And you're talking about a bronze level plan with a high deductible. If that plan is high deductible, and we all think, you know, a deductible, even a few thousand is high, but these could be $8,000 uh, could be your deductible. It's also your maximum out of pocket. So there are two things at work. There's your deductible, which is what you pay before the insurance company pays anything. Then there's your maximum out of pocket. And sometimes they can be the same. They can be one and the same. And on those bronze level, high deductible plans, sometimes they are. Right. Um, and you pay with the exception of an annual physical and a well woman exam for women. Everything is out of pocket, your prescriptions, your office visits, anything that you require in terms of medical services for that year. Now, if you do choose that kind of a plan, you can fund a health savings account, HSA, right. if it's HSA compatible, and then you can deduct the contribution that uh, you've made toward that HSA. So it's beneficial in a few ways, particularly if you're generally a healthy person, um, then uh, that HSA deduction can be meaningful. Uh, right. You're not going to spend down a lot of that money. And you're not that worried about spending that full $8,000 deductible or, or maximum out of pocket. So it does that save you money on premium and it saves you money on your taxes. That makes a lot of sense. And I know that's that's a very attractive option, especially for organizations that we work that have a young, that have a young staff. It can be a massive cost savings. It can be. But a lot of times what the organization looks at when they make that decision is, okay, there's an $8,000 deductible. We can't fund that full and we've not, nor should we, but we'll find right. 3000 of it, leaving the employee potentially with 5,000. Now, if the, if the employer is funding $3,000, that's a huge benefit to the employee. It is. If they're getting first dollar coverage, right? You know, yeah. not even any co-pays, but if they have something big, 
then they're looking at a $5,000 Delta before they hit their maximum out of pocket. For a lot of people, $5,000 is just, you know, unaffordable. So double-edged sword uh, doesn't work for everyone. It works when you really can, can get a lot of savings on that premium. Uh, and often it also works well when an employer is going to put in place a health reimbursement arrangement, HRA, because with that HRA, if the employee doesn't use the money, the employer has not given that away irrevocably to the employee. It's still the employer's money at the end of the year if okay. it hasn't been used. That makes a lot of sense. All right, Chuck. So just in our final few minutes, if you, I think healthcare is a really hot topic now. It, it always is, but I feel like it's more so just in light of what's happened over the past couple of years. If you could give two to three tips to our nonprofit listeners, just things that they should think about when choosing the best option for their organization, that would be really helpful. Yeah, I'm happy to. I mean, one of the things that we see is that nonprofits, since generally the pay scale is lower, they're looking to provide richer benefits. How do you provide richer benefits? The first thing you need to pay attention to is the network. Unfortunately, in our system, we need to have networks of physicians and hospitals. We want to make sure, number one job is to make sure that that network is going to work for their employees and that the employees mm -hmm. will feel value in that health insurance plan because they can see the doctors uh, that they want to see, their children can see the pediatricians that they want them to see. So network is is generally our first question where we can help them look into network. And number two, if they're a small and growing nonprofit, it's generally the contribution formula that they can provide to their employees. Often in the past, that was expressed as a percentage. Uh, we contribute 50%, we contribute 75%. But for a small nonprofit, as you and I talked about before, with that moving target, every year where those premiums are going up, it may make more sense to express that in a fixed dollar value. So for a single employee, that number will be $500 a month. If you're a couple, it will be $750. If you're a single parent and so on, uh, it just kind of takes you a little bit out of the game of every year just trying to you know, figure out what your budget is going to be. Obviously, you can add to that fixed amount over time as well. But one of the things that that allows you to do is if you're offering multiple plans, then the employee can allocate that money however they choose. Yeah. Uh, so that may work better for them. And in the final analysis, if they're looking to, to lower costs, you and I have discussed, you know, the, the merits of PEOs, whether they might work for a nonprofit, they may or they may not, depends on the size, depends on the demographics, but at least explore it. And, you know, not to be self-serving, but I think a broker is really your best option rather than you trying to go to a Insperity, an ADP, a Trinet, a JustWorks, and just try to figure it all out because they're all speaking in relatively different languages, ha really have are. a broker, have a broker do that for you and then have a broker to be there for ongoing service. Okay. This has been great, Chuck. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to The Balance. I'm your host, Amy Carson. You can learn more about our company, Brand K Partners, and what we do at brandkpartners.com. Our production partner for this series is Citizen Racecar, and this episode was produced by David Hoffman, post-production by Garrett Tiedemann, and production managed by Gabriella Montekin. 
If you like the show, never miss an episode by subscribing on all your favorite podcast apps. And please leave a rating and a review. See you next time.